Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Todd Olson, the CEO of Pendo, and a longtime product leader. If you don't know Pendo, Pendo is a product cloud that provides user insight, user guidance, and user communication for digital product teams. With Pendo, these product teams can understand product usage, collect feedback, measure NPS, onboard users, and announce new features, all in-app and all without requiring any engineering resources. So with this podcast, it was a really fun opportunity for me to break that fourth wall a little bit. For you see, Todd and I have been friends since college, and we've had the opportunity to work together now on two different startups. We talked a lot about his history as a product leader, from being the upstart competing with rational software, to the threat of Jira and Atlassian to Raleigh software. We talked about building out product teams and the most essential skills for product managers. Spent a lot of time, really, on the importance of analytics for product teams. But our conversation often veered into topics of driving value, as well as the importance of winning the hearts and minds of your customers. So this all got me to thinking, how do we drive value? There's numerous ways, right? Product managers depend on a number of things. Most importantly, data. You need data to understand what features are collecting dust and which ones are driving engagement, retention, and expansion. Without this data, right? How do you focus your resources on those things that are important? Frankly, why do anything that doesn't drive value? And while quantitative data points us in a certain direction, and qualitative data and feedback helps inspire us, the real power lies in an integrated combination of qualitative and quantitative information and the ability to act on this knowledge. The ability to look at data through multiple filters can give you unique and powerful insights. And on these insights, you can take action to improve your product and your customers' experiences with your product. In this episode, we'll delve into analytics for product managers. We'll talk about combining qualitative and quantitative data for unique insights. And we'll talk about product leadership and the skills essential to building products your customers love. Thanks, and as always, tweet at me at eBoduk or email me at eboduck at pendo.io. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today, I'm here with Todd Olson. You know, I have to say, Todd's Todd's an old friend of mine. I've known Todd for, what, it's, it's going over 20 years now. So there's definitely a history. You know, Todd and I worked together way back when, right out of Carnegie Mellon. We both went there and got uh, electrical and computer engineering degrees. So it's been a long time we've known each other. So having said that, why don't you give us a little overview, Todd, of your background, and we'll kick it off that way. Well, thanks, Eric. Yes, as, as you mentioned, we have known each other for a little over 20 years, which does make me feel a little old uh, sitting here today. But yeah, so background, as Eric mentioned, we, we uh, met at Carnegie Mellon, getting our electrical computer engineering degrees. Both of us co-founded a startup right out of college where I was more on the technology side. I think, I think my title was CTO at the time. And did that for a bit, then um, ended up moving down North Carolina after that 
taking a head of product, head of engineering role for a company called Together Soft. That company sold to Borland Software, where I was a chief scientist for about a year. After that, I started a company called Sixth Sense Analytics, which was my first SaaS startup and first analytics startup, actually. So it, it had both characteristics. Sold that company to Rally Software, where I was the head of product up through their IPO and then left uh, that after the IPO and started Pendo at the end of that year with Eric and, and a few others. Yeah, so talk to me a little bit about how you got started with product management. I mean, starting as a CTO, writing a lot of code. How do you get pulled into the product side you know, of, of the overall product team house? You know, I think I first got pulled into product management. And I guess if you step back, you know, when you're a CTO and you're a co-founder of a business, and certainly a co-founder in when we were doing it in our 20s, there was no class in product management. I didn't know that we need to hire these things. Heck, there, there wasn't a, I think a lot of it, we just didn't know what we were doing. So I, I think ostensibly we acted in this role. We decided what, what needed to be built. We talked to customers. We, I mean, I don't know if I formally wrote specs anytime, you know, a long time ago. But I think even in the very early days, while our, you know, I was certainly had a more technical title, I definitely felt like I did a lot of the work of product management. You know, actually, it was at TogetherSoft where when I got hired in there, unlike the first company where I actually wrote a lot of code, we had a, I had a huge team and I, they didn't need me to write code. <laughs> and frankly, I didn't know how to work on the code base. So what I found, like the best I could serve my team was to kind of help get a sense for what the market wanted. So I really acted as a product manager for a good part of my time there. So working everything from analysts to customers and helping say, you know, this is the direction we should take this product. So very much like the function, well, my title didn't say it, it wasn't formal. My, I feel like I did that role more and, it, and honestly, I really enjoyed it. Then um, at Rally, when, you know, I think Rally was a scaling company headed towards an IPO, you know, as folks know, when you're in a growth company, your role tends to focus and narrow. Like you go from doing a lot of things broadly to doing one thing more specifically and you kind of have to pick. And I decided it would be most fun and most interesting. And I thought I could benefit the business more. It aligns more with my strengths to go into the product side of the house. So that's what I did. And I guess I did it most formally there in terms of having that title. And I had a bit of product management, product marketing, obviously UI, UX, technical documentation. So all that kind of rolled up to me. And honestly, it's a really, really fun role, fun time. So were you always a product manager, a product leader? You know, like a, a caterpillar is always a butterfly, kind of? I think, yes. I was probably always a product manager that just happened to be able to code pretty well, right? So I think, and look, as a product manager, you, you never feel like you have enough hands-on keyboard to build things. I know I've never felt like, so if I feel like I'm capable of doing something, might as well roll up the sleeves and do it. But I think my natural tendency is to be more product management oriented than, than CTO. If I think about the things that like I enjoy solving better, I think I enjoy solving this whole, how do we take these business problems in this market and we fit a solution to it, right? And, and I think I enjoy that problem more than, okay, I've got this really hard technical scaling issue. Let's figure out how to do it. And, and you know, I, I think I've done both, but I think it, what I, really gives me joy, I, I think it's probably the, the former, not the latter. So let's talk about a couple areas where you worked. First, let's talk a little bit about TogetherSoft, right? Because you guys were kind of the upstart in a world that, you know, the big player there was Rational, right? Yep. So what was it like leading the product team, the engineering team, the group there? 
as kind of that new guy overtaking an established competitor? Well, one, we had a disruptive technology in it, and I can't take any credit for that. The, the team had it, the CTO had, had come up, and that, that disruptive technology was at the, the model. So TaylorSoft, just by way of very brief background, was a software architecture design tool. So it created pretty pictures and boxes that represented architecturally how software was structured. So this is days in you know, early object-oriented software. So that was cool about Together is that Together was synchronized with the code. So it's just way more efficient that the way Rational worked was you generated code and you try to synchronize it, never really worked 100%, kind of was challenging. So, so together it was disruptive. But I think the, the thing that I did and the things that I thought a lot about was, okay, so if there's this architecture piece and design piece and it generates this code piece and we have all this code in my tool, if we're only capturing the design piece, we're only capturing a small percentage of the developer's job. And... How do we capture a greater percentage of the developer's job? I mean, how do we go from being a weekly active use product to a daily active use product? And I think that was a challenge with design tools in general. What, how often do you design something? Certainly not every day, but you're coding something probably every day. So the big, I think, product management activity I did led at Together was trying to broaden our category to, to encapsulate what an IDE would do, an integrated development environment. So remember, these are the days when Eclipse was just being invented. There was things like JBuilder and Semantic Visual Cafe. And, and one of the big efforts we did was to broaden together to actually have IDE-like functionalities and limit the gaps so you could pick one solution. Ultimately, it would garner us more budget and it would, tra- it would transfer us or grow us from being a weekly active use or monthly active use solution to a daily active use. We feel like if we won the hearts and minds of developers, that company would ultimately win. And it's interesting from a perspective of you took an, an area, a stance that was very different than Rational and that Rational really couldn't copy, right? And that gave you an opportunity in a segment in the marketplace that was naturally going to choose you. Yes. I mean, but I think also you got to look at what Rational was doing that was better than us. And, you know, so one of the areas that Rational was really good at was process. So they had these things called like, I think there were three amigos, three like fellow level people, all wrote books, famous, famous people. We didn't have, we didn't, I think we had one famous person actually, one amigo. Um, it wasn't me, it was our, our founder. But, you know, if you even think about today, you think about the agile movement, the, the, the person that invented the rational unified process invented the new safe, which is one of the new kind of agile processes. So these guys are like really good at that. And we talked internally, we can go invent our own software process, but it wouldn't, it would have lacked credibility and it clearly wouldn't have won. And, at the end of the day, we decided that we'd focus on our strength, which was tools developers like to use. And we knew that would bring us into a kind of slightly different competitive set. It started having us compete with Borland. Hence, you guys going to see where Borland eventually acquires us. But we felt like it was the right direction to take the company because we felt like if we, we gathered their hearts and minds, we would ultimately displace Rational. Because if developers liked us more... They would use us more and eventually we'd win. So, you know, I think it's just kind of looking at the assets you have, looking at your strengths, looking at your competitor's strengths and kind of saying, okay, what is a good natural direction for us to go in? And that one felt like it. So it ended up working working out pretty well for us. Yeah, I think there's an interesting lesson to be learned about positioning there. It's not just about, you know, trying to tackle the three amigos, right, or try to fight against a competitor in an area where they're strong, but think about how you can position them and position yourself in a way that draws, in this case, you know, like you talked about moving to daily active users, that creates this cool little niche for you, maybe overlaps with a new competitive area, but 
attracts people that are likely to buy you just because of what you're not. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think we had a thesis early on that whoever wins the developer wins the day. And, and it was interesting is I think today of all times, there's a lot of consensus among the venture movement against, you know, frankly, the markets that, yeah, the company that wins the hearts and minds of developers typically win the market share. You look at Elastian success, you look at folks like GitHub eventually being acquired by Microsoft for a very large multiple. And, you know, looking back to those days, what software developer is passionate about software process? Very few. I mean, honestly, it's like a lot of books. I know as a former software developer myself, like I don't get up every day. It's like, woohoo, let's go like work on, you know, more analysis. Process. You're like, yeah, no, no. It's like not, you don't get passionate about it. They get passionate about solving cool technical problems. So we figured if we could help developers solve cool technical problems in a tool that kind of got out of the way, made them more efficient, that strategy was ultimately a winning strategy. And I think... Uh, you sure it's not process testing documentation? Yeah, no, I think, I think no one loves that <laughs> crap. I mean, it's necessary evils. No, like, let's not say let's not anything negative about you know, testing and process. It's necessary, but yeah, lighter's better. So now another really interesting experience you had, you, you ran product or headed up product at Rally Software. Yep. And in, in that case, you had a very big competitor in Atlassian. Talk to me about, the, and I, I feel like there's some similar dynamics in the together soft, rational, competitive space that you then had with Atlassian and Rally, maybe from a different perspective though. Yeah, so there we had the exact opposite issue. And, and it was clear that, you know, look, Rally was the leader in, you know, helping teams scale agile. And that was our strength. We were really, really, really good at that. And a part of scaling agile, though, was a problem that kind of elevated beyond developers. It was more what we call program level or portfolio level agile. It gave more executive views, but, you know, it's actually pretty much flip opposite. You know, their process is, and again, scaling, roll-ups, visibility, that was our strength. That's what we had that no one else had. And we decided to leverage that to, to compete, whereas Atlassian at the time had the hearts and minds of developers. So we did now try not to secede that to them. There's a number of initiatives that we tried that, because um, some of that's price as well. That always factors into things. Elastian had a disruptive price point to us. But they were, I mean, the great thing about Jira at the time, you know, and I always said this, Jira was better than free and open source, but not that expensive. So like they, they took what was open source. You remember at the time, there was like not much open source in terms of defect trackers, like Bugzilla, a few other things. They had a better product than that at a really reasonable price. So people will just download it off the internet, throw it under their desk and use it. And that was a very difficult thing to compete with. I mean, I think of all the situations I've been in professionally, that was one of the harder ones. So let's step back and, and we'll go to some of your other history before we finish, but let's go back to product management. So you've led product teams in the past. You're obviously at a company now, Pendo, that sells to product teams, right? What qualities do you look for in product managers, product leaders? You know, look, it's it's a mix of things, right, as far as the qualities I look for in product leaders and product managers. But, yeah, I, I think at some level, yes, you want someone with really good vision. And vision meaning, you know, you have some sense of kind of how you see the future. You can see a little bit around corners. I like product leaders that, that do have a bias towards shipping and experimentation, so anyone can go dark for six months or eight months and try to build the perfect mousetrap. But I, I, you know, my philosophy and style is much more, uh, how do we get this out faster? 
how can we quickly ship this thing and start getting feedback? It's my belief that in product, we're always guessing until we ship something and we start getting feedback. And the faster we ship, the faster we're actually learning about what needs to be done, right? So huge bias towards shipment. And so I'm looking for leaders, looking for product people that, that have a bias towards shipping, getting software out there. You know, speed really, really matters. I think those are some of the big ones that I think about. I mean, experimentation is something super, super important to me. So, I, you know, it's yeah. interesting. I, I did a, a podcast with the head of product over at Duolingo, learning education software. I think mostly mobile, mix of mobile web. Really cool company. And he talked, you know, about as he scales, building kind of a matrix of skill sets, knowing that he's not going to find all the skills he wants in a single product manager, but looking at the makeup of the team. Now, what's what's your approach as you build out a team of product managers? How do you approach different skill sets? You know, things like technical expertise, domain space. How do you think about that? Hundred yeah, percent agree with whoever that that, that person Jorge. was. Yeah. What? Jorge. Jorge, Jorge. Mazal. He, he's a wise man, apparently. Um, yeah, actually, I've gone so far in my product teams to, to use personality tests like Strength Finders, and I like to have a balance amongst teams. So there's actually one of the Strength Finders books, I think it's called Strength-Based Leadership, and it kind of talks about how you want teams composed with individuals for different strengths, and one of the groups of strengths in Strength Finders is called Visionary or Vision or something to that effect, and I know that when I'm looking for a product leader, I want someone that has a few strengths in that, that vision section. I find that I found challenges when folks don't have that. But there's also an execution part of the strength finders. And I find if I have a team that has no one in the execution stage, you just can't get things done. I mean, at the end of the day, when the rubber meets the road, you do need some level of specifications or details. You need, you know, I don't care how you do it, whether it's a user story or a mock-up, you need you need and an engineer, I know as an engineer, when I sit down and like work on something, yes, I'm going to have a conversation. I want someone to be available. But sometimes I want to just be able to read something and kind of like knock it out. You know, maybe it's, you know, maybe I want to work on it in my evening. Maybe I want to work on it in an off time. It needs to be specified to a level of detail where I can just kind of sit down and knock it out. So you need people in the execution side, right? So I think all in all, you know, product, you need people with all these different skills. And I guess I'm going through the strength finders just to be complete. There's another section called influence. Again, if you're a product manager and you don't have influence skills, you may find it challenging to do your job. And you know, it doesn't mean that every product manager needs to have that skill. But you need someone on your team that's going to have that skill. You know, I was reading this morning on Twitter about... Melissa Perry? Uh, Maybe it was Melissa Perry or maybe someone responding to Melissa Perry about one of the key aspects of influence is being able to say no and have people agree with you, believe you. Um, I, I think it was Larry Mascheroni, a good friend of mine as well, responding to Melissa's tweet this morning. And they're just so right. You know, influence is a key skill. And again, doesn't mean if you don't have it, you can't be a product manager. But it means you probably need to partner someone in your team who has it. Yeah, it was interesting. Part of that thread was... This idea that if, if you don't like the part of influencing other people, if, if that's not part of your personality, then maybe you don't want to be a product manager. And I don't know if I'd go that far, but someone on the team or some people on the team definitely have to have that skill set. Yeah, I mean, I've run two in a box before. Two in a box is when you have two people sort of responsible for an area or a product area. And I'd usually marry a product marketing person with a product manager for a certain like big project that we work on at Rally. And... 
I'm looking for people that have complementary skills. People have a little mixed bag of both because I knew together they're like a force to be reckoned with. Individually, yeah, they're all effective, but together, again, they're, they're optimally effective. So that's something I've used in the past to address that. So you've been doing this for a long time. What skills did you underestimate PMs having at first, but then realize they're really important to have or to develop later on? I think some of the strategic skills are something I probably underestimated early on. I, I thought, you know, a lot of product comes down to instinct and what we call here at Pendo product decision making. And, you know, we, we screen this with a number of tests and other things, but it's not to say people have either good or bad, but I would say that we're looking for people that kind of think the way, you know, not necessarily the way we think, but there needs to be some level of just strong decision making. And when given a problem, different people approach it different ways. And I think this whole notion of strategy and product-led decision making is actually a pretty hard thing to screen for. But, you know, I've, I've met people in my career and worked with people that just make bad decisions on the product side, you know, and bad being probably not the, not the right thing to build at the right time. So, yeah, for me, I always thought about empathy, right? Never real, you know, I always knew it was good to have empathy for your customers, but just to degree that that's important for people in the product space, that definitely grew on me over time. How it really, really being able to feel, be emotionally attached to the, the problem you're trying to solve, not the product, but the actual problem you're trying to be solved and the empathy there. That was always something that I thought I, I maybe underestimated. If that's it. I mean, I also think, the influence skills, going back to that tweet this morning, they're really, really, really important. You know, and I look back at when I was most successful in product is because I, I built relationships across the entire organization that I later leaned on to, to accomplish my goal, right? So that means, you know, I would volunteer to go to marketing events and speak. Well, why would I do that? I mean, yeah, part of it's I enjoy it, but part of it's I'm I'm building goodwill with the marketing team because they need speakers, they need content. And by doing that, I was building good relationships with them. I would volunteer to go on sales calls to help close deals. Why did I do that? One, I enjoy it, yes. Two, it gets me in front of customers. That's always great. Three, you know, building relationships with sales folks is you know a really useful thing to have when you're trying to get things done later, right? So building relationships outside your organization that later can be used you know, is super, super valuable skill. So let's talk about something you mentioned uh, in the answer a little bit back, and that was about decision-making. It brought up a, a thought I had about data and how important data is for product managers, right? Data is like the new black. All product managers want to be data-driven or data-aligned or <laughs> at least data-informed. You know, why? What do you think is so significant about product analytics and data for product managers? Well, I think... So often, as a product manager, we're just flying blind on what people are using and not using, and we're simply guessing. And sometimes you're right when you guess. Some, you know, sometimes your instinct is good, but sometimes you're wildly wrong. And I, I know the first time I started getting real interesting information on how people are using my product, it was eye-opening. And I, I know I was working on something, and I just I was getting feedback from everyone that they love it, and the customers were loving it, and sales was telling me it was driving new revenue and I was like yes you know we got this thing you know and then I got usage data back and like really no one was using it they're just like snacking on it I call snacking is when like a customer like touched it a little bit but clearly doesn't really use it at least not as it was intended and that's frustrating because then then you know that 
okay, well, well, your early indicators and your early signals are good, you're, it's probably gonna catch up to you. There's probably gonna be a problem later. Like six months from now, you're gonna have a, oh, people aren't renewing based on this or people aren't getting value from it. So I think until you get real data and really validate something's working, you're not done yet. You know, and I think that was the, the thing that was most eye-opening to me was it was how we can use data to just determine doneness, really. So talk to me a little bit more about that. Talk to me about what analytics are important to product managers. Well, I, I think there, there's any number of analytics that, that are useful. So, you know, obviously product usage, whether someone's using something or not using something, is incredibly valuable. Whether it's things like, hey, I'll never forget, we're working on something, you know, at, at Rally and... We had an area of our product that we as a product team, like just we did not want to continue supporting and investing it. You know, it was like something else built a while ago. Frankly, only a few people on my team were even around when it was originally built. So, of course, we didn't have passion around it because we didn't build it. Right. So that's one aspect of it. But we didn't use it internally. So, you know. We weren't getting value out of it. We're like, why are we carrying this thing around? So we started doing research and started saying, okay, well, these are the number of the customers that are using it. Okay, great. Let's go talk to them. So then, you know, it's, it's, it's one, using quantitative information to come up with this list. Then two, then doing interviews and getting qualitative information from them or how are they using it. Then what we did was we worked on a plan to migrate them with some new functionality in a different area of our product. And we started testing and seeing, hey, would this satisfy your needs? Would this cause you to not use this other thing? And we started getting back really, really positive answers from them, So, which is another type of data we're getting in it. So, so when you marry kind of quantitative and qualitative, it can help you make more informed decisions. And we were actually able to successfully end of life this area of our product that had been around for a while. We retained all the customers. Developers were happy because they did have to maintain some really old piece of code that that was you know, written in a you know, different technology set. So it was, a, it was a, honestly it was a success, and that's just one area. I mean, you know, we also use things like Net Promoter Score. While it's not a perfect metric, it's data. You know, it's interesting qualitative information on, on what people think. And you know, so if you ask you, well, would you recommend this? And someone says no, reading through the written comments really, really, really useful. You know, we, we get all sorts of inspiration for, wow, we should really go fix that or we should go take a look at that. So I've used lots of things like that to drive decision making. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think there's some really interesting things to be learned by a combination of things. I, I, you talked about usage data. You talked about net promoter score. I can see the overlap of some of that data being very interesting, meaning like what people who are promoters, what are they actually using in your product? I imagine there's a lot of insights to be gained by product teams on, on that overlap of usage data with things like NPS. Yeah, 100%. You know, it, it, when you combine quant and quality, you get some really powerful insights. So, you know, whether it's looking at what your promoter's doing or what your detractor's doing, or actually even more importantly than either, is uh, I like to like, look a lot of what my neutral folks are doing because your best way to a better NPS score is to focus on your sevens and eights, getting specifically your eights getting to nine. That's your actually biggest bang for your buck. Trying to convince a detractor to be a promoter, it's probably not a good use of your time. But focusing on those folks on the edge, like what are they missing to give it that nine, right? It's really, really good use of your time. It's interesting you mentioned that. That's uh, Gibson Biddle, ex-product lead over at Netflix. He talks about that a lot. He fixates on the sixes, right? And he, because he knows it's really going to be hard to move a two to a 10, but it's the sixes. He's like, those are the ones that keep me up at night. 
you know, what can I do? What do they want? What do they need to move, you know, up to and, and become a promoter? Yeah, 100%. I mean, that, that, that's the right way to be thinking about it. So really getting a good profile of what those neutral individuals are is a good thing. Yeah, the other thing I look at a lot out in, in product usage analytics is, you know, I spend a lot of time looking at outliers. You know, I'll look at something that is used a lot. Sometimes it's used a lot more than I would have ever anticipated. And sometimes that can be a really good thing. Sometimes it actually can be a really bad thing. Some, you know, so someone using something a lot, maybe the sign of a usability flaw. Maybe they're using it a lot because there's no easier way to do it. But I've learned a lot, you know, through that. You know, we have this obscure feature in, in our product here at Pendo. And, you know, I end up seeing a single customer using it like hundreds of times, which just was like weird. You know, it, was, it wasn't built for that, nor was it intended to be used that, that much. So we called them, like, what the heck are you doing? And then, you know, we, we learned kind of a new behavioral pattern that we had anticipated, a new use case essentially for our product that, that you know, led to some, some interesting new development areas. But I think that's, that's one of the things I, I love discovering as I'm kind of poking around. So let's, let's talk about what product managers get wrong. What do they tend to get wrong about analytics and metrics and data? Well, I think the, the common most misconception is that somehow, like, you have some data that can tell you exactly what to build. Like, out comes this algorithm and say, you know, oh, build feature A. I mean, I think data is here to inform decisions. It's not here to make the decision for you. So I think it's a common misconception. I mean, I think also I hear a number of constructive feedback around net promoter score being an imperfect measure and it being gamed. And sure, sure, it, it's imperfect. A lot of measures are imperfect. But, you know, I, I think if you have a choice of doing nothing or doing MPS, I think you'll be a better organization if you measure MPS. So sometimes we do things that, that are may not be the most perfect things, but they're, they're directionally very, very good. And, you know, I think if you do them, it'll make you a better org. It's it's interesting you mentioned that. I was reading a little while back about a metric. Well, let me just say the question. The question that they asked people using their product was, how disappointed would you be if you couldn't use this product anymore? And then the off, the, you know, it was similar to Net Promoter Score. I, I think the way that they had phrased it was, you know, very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, a little disappointed, not disappointed at all. And I might be butchering that a little bit. But then they started looking at that as far as scores and looking at it to assess product market fit. What do you think about something like that? And you've ever tried to use some kind of metric to assess product market fit? I haven't, but that sounds like an interesting model, right? So I, I, I'm just thinking out loud, I mean, it, 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 that goes to, is this must-have versus nice-to-have, right? How disappointed would you be? Because if you're not disappointed at all, then if you didn't have it, then probably not must-have, right? So, yeah, I mean, and I, I think what I've done in the past is just literally try to take it away from people. <laughs> and if people it's the same kind of result. If people complain, then I know there's some value there. People don't complain, then no one cared. So, or, I mean, I, I do think, and this also can be controversial in the product community, but charging someone for something. So if I'm starting and I'm giving something away from free and now I'm saying, oh, no longer free. This is going to be, I don't know, thousand bucks or something to that effect. If you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll pay a thousand bucks for that. Yeah. That means you probably have product market fame. So I'm like, yeah, peace out. No, there's no way it's worth that. Then you probably don't. Right. And I think the where product market fit gets interesting is, is let's say you have a cohort of 100 people and some numbers say, yes, I will pay, and some don't, then you have this discussion, is that number that said yes a big enough number? Meaning, is it a big enough market for it to sustain the kind of business that I want to run? 
And we all want to run different kinds of businesses, but you know, some people have want to create really, really large businesses. Some are cool creating, you know, a smaller business. And and, and honestly, I, I applaud anyone starting any kind of business. But uh, this it's a really interesting test, kind of understanding who's willing to pay for something and who's not. So you know, as a, as a product leader now, a CEO of Pendo, what metrics do you want to see? Like, what metrics roll up to you? What do you want to know from your product team, from your CPO, your VP of product management, and even from the product managers? What's important? What's in that dashboard for Todd Olson? Yeah, so a number of things are in the dashboard. I mean, one, we, we do look a lot at Net Promoter Score. We've been looking at it now for years. We have good trends around it. It's part of our culture. So that's something that, that's yeah, honestly, I look at it every week, so it's completely baked into to how we run our company. We look at usage metrics and a couple of different factors. One, we, we look at whether our customers are daily, weekly, or monthly. And I look at it both from a user lens and from a customer lens. So meaning, is anyone from this customer logging in at least daily or weekly? And then what percentage of our user base is daily versus weekly versus monthly? So we look at all those metrics and the whole notion. Going back to my original comments, we were trying to drive towards being a daily active use product. So the, the, the companies, the, the amazing brands you think about, they're all daily use active use products. Very, very few iconic brands are you know, less frequent than that. And, and, and the ones we, you know, you can name are kind of more episodic products like, like TurboTax, for example, something you ever want to use daily. Thank God, who would want to do taxes on a daily basis? But um, it's obviously an iconic, iconic product in, in its own right. So, so those are just a couple that, that, that we look at. We do like to look at just broad usage for new features. Like when we ship something, what's the adoption of that thing? You know, this whole notion of is it done or not? We're trying to track doneness of, of features when we ship them. So recent deliveries, I'm, I'm looking at just that it was delivered, but what percentage of our customers and what percentage of our users have used it and retained using it? So, you know, one interesting I heard lately, this whole concept of uh, feature adoption, right, in the applied to the 80-20 rule. I mean, I, I think there's some interesting data that, that maybe Pendo will be publishing soon, a little bit about how 80-20 rule holds for product features. Was that something you would expect, wouldn't expect? And you think product managers know that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's all sorts of anecdotal comments or conversations like, well, we all know that like most features that are built aren't used, right? So you hear people say that. And then, you know, I go back to there's a report called the Chaos Report published by the Standisha Group years ago. When I say years, I mean like at least 10, probably more than 10 now. And, and, it had a famous chart about, you know, like 60 or 70% of features are rarely or ever used. And it got quoted so many times in so many different studies and reports. And now the challenge is, is it was based on a survey, based on a survey a long time ago. It hasn't really been updated since then. And, and, and there hasn't been any real science around it. So we are really excited that, you know, we decided to really focus on this problem and try to answer the question, what percentage of our products actually are used? And not just publish a report on it, but then help teams understand what percentage of their products are used and help them understand which ones of those are, which ones of those aren't, so they can focus on prioritizing things that are going to deliver more value for customers. And that's ultimately our, you know, if I go back to our mission, our vision, heck, our name, you know, Pendo is, is Latin for value. The, the whole reason our name is Pendo is because the vision day one was we want to make sure that people are creating things that drive value back to customers. If there's not driving value back, why build it? 
right? Seems like waste. So I think with this feature adoption analytic report and capability, it's really just another good example of how we're trying to, to live our vision, live our name, and help teams build software that, that's delivering more value back to customers. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I remember talking to Duncan McCleary over at MemberClicks in Atlanta, and, and they started doing retros for new feature releases, looking at did they meet their goals, how's the adoption, what's the NPS of this new feature, and treating it you know, as, as, I want to say a mini release, but just treating it as a retro. I mean, do you see a trend where leaders, maybe not just even product leaders, but the CEOs and other people in charge of the dollars that are being allocated to R&D are demanding more information about things like feature adoption, NPS, usage, and how efficiently resources are being allocated? Yeah, you know, demand is a strong verb. I don't know if I would have, but it would be nice that we as a corporate culture start paying more attention to are we building the right things and are they actually delivering value back to customers and ultimately the organization. You know, like, you know, people scrutinize R&D spend, but in a lot of organizations, product teams are the ones that are directing that R&D spend. And, you know, I look at myself and I led product, I guess I always want to know, am I making good decisions? Now, if you're building a bunch of things that aren't getting used, you are probably not making good decisions, right? So now I've talked to a few board members and CEOs like, wow, you know, like, do you think product managers are scared of bringing this sort of lens to themselves? And I say, look, I mean, <laughs> we're all being measured in some way, shape or form, right? And I'd rather get ahead of it <laughs> and see what the number is and, and, you know, be the first to know rather than ultimately being the last to know. And I, you know, I, I think then I could, if I'm the last to know, it's hard for me to do something about it. If I'm the first to know, I can start taking actions to try to really make it better. So that's kind of how I think about it. So we've talked a lot about data, analytics, usage. If you had to give kind of three takeaways for product managers, especially young product managers out there to think about or to do, what would they be? Well, I guess the first takeaway is focus on delivering real value back to customers and end users and make sure you don't, you don't declare victory on building something until you know that the customers receive value from it. Two, try to focus on learning and experimentation and guessing in advance what the perfect thing is to build. Accept the fact that you're going to be wrong. More often, you're going to be right. And take a mindset where you try to break things into really small increments and try to test repeatedly. Honestly, those two alone, if you do those two things, you'll be in a good shape. Yeah, I don't think you need a third. So Great. So now you're CEO of Pendo, builds software for product teams. I've always heard, and I, I completely agree with, it's always hard building, being a company that sells to, you know, kind of uh, your core audience, right? Like being a, a CPO of a software company that sells to other CPOs or being a product-oriented CEO that sells to, you know, product teams. Talk to me a little bit about that. Is it hard? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I, I think when you're in your own market and because you have a responsibility not just to be excellent at your job, but to set an example for the industry, if you can, right? And, and so I always think deeply about what we're doing and does this set the right example? Are we, we modeling good behavior? Just like as a parent, you know, I've got a bunch of kids and, and I always try to think, you know, what kind of behavior am I modeling for my kids? Not to say that the rest of the industry is my children. I'm not trying to say that, but, but modeling good behavior is something that I think is, is, is ultimately very, very critical. So 
I think people hold us to a very high standard, and and they should. But it, but you know it means that we we have to be very very thoughtful about how we conduct ourselves. And you know I think you know certainly like on the UX side and the product side, you know if we do a poor job, we hear about it very very quickly. And and I actually I appreciate them keeping us honest, but but yeah, it's a little little more work. So we talked about your experience at Rally, TogetherSoft, your learnings there, especially around product, product positioning, marketplaces. Talk to me about how you applied what you learned there when you were building Pendo. Well, I mean, we're all shaped by our prior experiences, and we've all seen things we love. We've all seen things we not loved. I mean, I, I think, you know, I talked a little bit about how successful Atlassian was against Rally and, and while I was there, and, and, and I think we did an actually an excellent job handling them ultimately, so we, it was hard. So you'll see, when we started Pendo as a company, we, we had a, a, a really strong focus on things like NPS and usability, and we wanted to be easily consumed. You know, we never wanted to make it too heavy, too enterprisey. I mean, there's no question that Pendo's an enterprise software product. We're supporting now very large businesses, but we've always wanted to have kind of a something easy for a small team to, to consume. So what's interesting about it, we, you know, Pendo has five-person companies using it, 10-person companies, and we have 10,000 employee companies using it. The same exact product. And, and some people would say that's really, really hard to do. And yeah, it is hard to do. But we believe, or I guess I, I say this a lot to our product teams, while, while the big companies may, may ultimately make you the most money, the small companies are the ones that really keep you honest and make you great. You know, if you can make a 10-person software company where Pendo could be a decent percentage of their spend, one of the maybe larger budget items, if we can make them happy, that feels good. You know, and I, I think we can support the needs of really large customers. So I think those folks tend to be very, very difficult in, in a good way, right? And so... I love the fact that we haven't ignored small businesses as we scale the company. It's one of the things probably I'm most proud of. So let's talk about the future a little bit. What upcoming trends do you see in product management? Well, I mean, I, I think a couple things I see that, that are coming up, and maybe these are not as new to some folks in the audience, but I do think they're relatively new. But there's this whole growth mindset that, has kind of bled over from the consumer-based internet companies to the B2B-based companies. And, and you know, growth can be largely summed up as kind of this integrated role that's looking at everything from the top of the marketing funnel through the trial experience, buying process, and ultimately the, the early customer onboarding experience. Like kind of looking at that holistic experience is how do I discover a product try it out, buy it, consume it, start using it. You know, in the consumer world, it's called a growth role. It's a more integrated cross multidisciplinary role. I think that, I think the fact that that's, we're seeing more and more B2B or more enterprise oriented companies do that, I think is one of the interesting changes. I think the second interesting change is how we can use our product as a communication platform. You know, a lot of us have tried to communicate with our users and you know, webinars, over email, of course, we're, we're kind of call people. And not to say that we shouldn't do those things still today, but I, I think now communicating use with your users in product, in the app itself, is just having a much better response rate. And you're going to see more and more customers focus on, on that communication 
medium. And now when we go do that, we're going to be really, really thoughtful about, you know, how often do we communicate and interrupt the user's workflow, right? So I think there's going to be this balancing act we see as we start doing something for the first time. You know, I think some teams are maybe going to do it too much. Some are going to use it too infrequently. You're going to find this balancing for how often and how do we actually communicate with users in that. Yeah, so let's talk about the first part of what you just brought up a little bit more. You know, when I've heard growth in the past, and I know it's changed a lot in this particular product-led growth and that concept, a lot of people were talking about, you know, landing page tweaking, you know, trying to get better conversion rates all on the top end of the funnel. But there's a lot of things enterprises can do to drive product-led growth, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean... I think you got to look at the entire process in which someone consumes and tries you out, right? I mean, you know, everything from like little sandbox environments, you know, which are playgrounds, essentially, hence the name, where people can try out your product without actually installing anything. We're seeing that more and more. And in some instances, that actually that's actually fairly challenging to build. You know, it could be an engineering project in and of its own. You know, another thing is just making sure the new user experience or onboarding experience is flawless. It gets you in and gets you seeing value very, very quickly. I think those are just some things out of the box that, that can really, really help. What else? What else do you think? What else can help there on the product-led growth side? I mean, I imagine if you have the data, if you're doing analytics, there's a lot you can do with cross-sell, upsell, and retention too, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, if you are a multi-product company, Trying to highlight cross-sells is um, much more useful in app. Hey, I know you should try this out. we got this whole other product area. Why don't you check it out? This is why it's valuable. We, we've even seen some companies have their finance team do collections in app. If they can't get a hold of the team, like, hey, guys, you're, you're, you haven't paid yet. You know, do you want to keep using this software? You know, why don't you try it out? And these are all interesting use cases for, for is that growth? Certainly, it's part of retention. You know, getting paid is important. But, um, you know, all these are interesting techniques. So it, it's, it's kind of fun doing this interview today, having, you know, known you for years. Before I get to some of the interesting questions, let's kind of wrap up your thoughts on product management a little bit. We talked about some takeaways for analytics. You gave two that you thought people should really think about. But if you're talking to product managers, what's some big takeaways? What's some other big takeaways for them, things that they should be thinking about as they kind of hone their craft? Look, I mean, I, I think this isn't just for product managers, I think it's for anyone, but uh, I think you need to continue learning and continue growing. And what you don't want to do is continue doing things the same way you have for 10 to 15 years. I mean, I, I'm constantly reading blog posts, constantly reading books, constantly trying new things, whether it's different processes, whether it's different tools, whether it's different you know, techniques, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to break work down and, and work collaboratively with engineering. You know, I, I think, you know, the, the magic is, is when you, you get an interesting business problem, you break it down, you kind of have this fun tension. I, I say it fun with engineering where, where you're, you're trying to push them, they're trying to push you, but you work together as a team, as a unit to solve in a really interesting way, in an iterative way, that this business problem. So I think, like, you know, just keep, keep learning, keep evolving. I think that, that, to me, is always the best advice. So, you know, going back to our history, way, way back when, Cerebellum Software, you know, we started together in, what, the late 1990s. 
kind of your first foray in, as a CTO and then, you know, in essence, being our head of product too, our, our VP of product, despite us having a, a product manager or two later in the company. And now, you know, for those of you who don't know, not only do I host Product Love, you know, the podcast, but I also work for Todd at Pendo. So who do you think was easier to work for? Was it easier to work for me or do you think it was easier for me to work for you? That's a good question. I mean, I, I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I can't say how easy or hard it is to work for me. So, so what do you what I do you no think idea. about? Let's ask, let's ask another question here. What what do you what advice do you give people for you know starting and working with? And I consider us good friends. What do you what advice do you give people out there starting a company with a friend of theirs? I think it's hard to start companies with friends so but you know it depends on your relationship with your friends so i think you know setting good expectations in advance yeah you know, i think in some cases we we both fell into something and just did it rather than maybe talking through all the scenarios i mean maybe if i did it, do it again i'd probably talk more about various scenarios you know what if analysis more just to get people's thinking but i think trust is a really important thing when you're starting a company in the early days i think if you've got a good friendship and you trust that person, then that, that does go a long way in the early days. I think it is very, very helpful. So yeah, it's very, very good. I, I would say, you know, for the people out there that are doing startups or kicking off a company with someone that's a friend of theirs, I don't think it's a bad thing to do. But I, I think you have to have that openness, that transparency, that honesty. And I, I think you have to keep that as the company grows and, and try as much as possible to, to, for everybody. I mean, good advice for entrepreneurs in general, just to, to stay humble. So a little bit more about Todd. What's your favorite product and why? Oh, come on. I mean, of course my favorite product's Pendo. It kind of has to be. But I guess if you say outside of Pendo. Well, yeah, let's, let's take two then. Let, tell us why Pendo's your favorite product, and we'll go to your second one. I think a lot of why it's my favorite product is just an immense amount of pride that I have around our team for building it. And I think it, it sheds light on something that previously didn't have light shed upon it. And I think what's unique about the Pendo product is that it combines, which traditionally two different things, messaging and product analytics into a single package. And I think that's been our core vision since day one. We actually had a customer reference called it Ungainly back in 20. 2014 the this combination right i mean so but we still persevered on even though we got some negative feedback because we had this vision that wow if you combine these two things you can actually drive engagement in the app you actually can increase value for customers i mean that's been our vision day one i think we've i think done a pretty darn good job so i've been yeah super proud of the team and and proud of where we come so it's probably number one i mean second product well, let's stick with that. Just let okay. me add one follow-on question before we get a second product. You know, it, Pendo has a strong core purpose, vision associated with it. Is that why you think you've stuck with this and we've stuck with it, the company stuck with it so long? Did that help kind of guide things, so to speak, a, a North Light or a North Star? I think every company needs a North Star. I think your ability to know who you are, stay true to yourself, and follow that North Star helps a ton. You know, I, I ask myself a lot when I'm evaluating. Just, just for people who don't know, what is, what is Pendo's core purpose? Core purpose is to help companies create better software products. That's what we do. And I ask myself all the time, like if we're looking at some strategic decision, like does this help? 
people, customers build better software products? And if the answer is no, we probably aren't going to do it. If the answer is yes, then there's a good chance that we'll be thinking about it very, very heavily. And yeah, that's our yardstick. That's our North Star. And that's why it led to us bringing two things together that traditionally hadn't been. It wasn't like our North Star was we want to create the best analytics platform in the world. Doesn't say that. We also didn't say we want to create the best in-app training platform or like we want to create better software products, you know, software products that deliver value of a better experience, you know, and, and yeah, I think you need both those things. And I've thought you needed both those things since day one. And honestly, it's probably not just those two things. There's probably more things you need, right? So you can see us continue to evolve our platform. We're kind of unafraid to do that. If we think whatever it is we're adding is going to help build better software, you know, by gosh, we're going to be looking at it and we're going to be focused on it. So, yeah, I think it, I think it does matter. And I, I completely agree. And I think there's a lesson for product management and, and startups out there, too, entrepreneurs, to think about having a really good, strong purpose, a, a strong North Star, so to speak, and sticking to it and really thinking when they're thinking about strategic decisions, making sure it aligns with their core purpose. And I think sometimes... People lose sight of that from time to time, especially when times get tough in a startup. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to get distracted by shiny objects. And that's what you see most often where people do something. That, or, or it's easy when you're really small and you get this huge customer and saying, I'll pay you blah, 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 some you know, extreme amount of money to do something that doesn't fit your core purpose. Now, look, I have a lot of empathy for entrepreneurs and Look, not everyone can raise capital. Not everyone has raised capital. And, and sometimes you need to do these things just to stay alive. You know, those are what I call existential decisions. And if you existentially have to do that, then look, I'm not going to think less of you to keep your business alive. You know, but you need to be honest with yourself if you're, if you're doing something like that that is not aligned with your North Star it will have an impact on your business. If you keep making those decisions, it probably isn't the right North Star. And if you don't have a North Star, you're probably not going to be a business for a very long time. You know, Because if saying yes to everything is not a good strategy. It's very, very hard to be successful if you say yes to everything. So I know we went a little off track there on favorite products, but I think there was, there's an important point to be made there to product teams, product leaders, product managers. So let's get back to your, your second favorite product and why. I'll say my second favorite product is a relatively newer product, that, that to me at least. And I'm going to go with Tesla. So I, I think that it's, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I didn't really get it until I drove one. But man, like the, the product engineers, designers, I really feel like they anticipated my wants and needs and, and they took something which, I've been doing since I was 16 years old driving. They made it an elevated experience, you know, and, and sure there's the environmental advantage of it as well. So there's other positive impacts, you know, that, that kind of also are, are pleasing. But um, it's just a great product. I mean, really, really, really great product. And, and yeah, so I think they a lot of details there. It's definitely a, a forward-thinking, visionary product. I think the brand has uh, some spirit. They're fun, playful at times. I like that, you know, for, for a brand that, you know, certainly, you know, is a luxury brand. It's not stuffy, right? So it feels very approachable. 
And I love that. I mean, I think that's definitely something unique. It, that's a, it's an interesting product to pick. I, I personally am not a Tesla owner, but as I've talked to people about it, you know, I, I get this perception that there's some car makers out there that are just about moving units, right? And that Tesla is really about inspiring this joy. I've never heard people talk so glowingly. They'll be across the room and we'll be mentioning something about Tesla or the stock, the car or whatever, and they'll, they'll come over to talk about how much they love their cars. And I've never heard that from any other automaker except Ferrari. And it's rare you run against, you know, to be honest, you run into people that own Ferraris. But I've seen that same kind of joy when they talk about their Ferrari. Tesla is the other brand there that I feel like really inspires this joy and pride of ownership that I've never seen outside of some, you know, few Ferrari instances. Yeah. Yeah. And the cool thing is, as a software person, a lot of it's software. You know, I mean, a lot of it's like, you know, I mean, look, I, if you'd asked me this question five years ago, maybe eight years ago, it probably would have been the iPhone that'd be my favorite product, clearly. Because I remember when I, and I think a lot of us who have an iPhone, not, and this is, I mean, I think iPhone, we all will agree, was the, the, the innovator that, that in, you know, Android was kind of the fast follower in that, that market space. But when you first got one, you first touched it with that touch screen, you're like, wow, like this is a revolutionary product. And I think Tesla is, for me, the next generation revolutionary product where, and it's driven by software. I mean, it, it's obviously a very good piece of hardware, but it's really, think of it, I think of it as a hardware platform. You know, and and then every oh I don't know what their update cadence is, but you know whether it's uh, but it's frequent. I know probably every month or so or every quarter that they're updating software updates, making changes, continue to innovate. So I think even the, the folks that get it today, they're going to take advantage of a lot of interesting upgrades o- over the years, and and it also means that whether you have a three or an S or an X or whatever model you have, you're probably getting appreciably the same software. And as one person gets an upgrade, another person also gets that upgrade. Just like, you know, whatever version of iPhone you have, you, you tend to be able to use the latest and greatest features, which is super, super cool. It's more democratized in that that sense. So yeah, I, I think um, they've done a, an amazing job on the product side. So it's pretty cool. So one final question for you today, three words to describe yourself. Three words to describe myself. I would say passionate. I'll go with empathetic. Maybe this is more of an aspirational value, but I like to think that I'm always thinking about what the other person's shoes are. And I think I've gotten a lot better at that as I get older. And third would be probably a little intense at times. So, but that's okay. I'll go with those three. Never notice the intensity. But... Thank you. This has been great. I'm kidding on the intensity too. Uh, but this has been great. Really enjoyed having you on the show today. And thanks, buddy. Thanks, man. Good to see you. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.